Hello, and welcome to Luther Abel's Education Studies 282 podcast for the Space Place Project. My name, as I said, is Luther Abel. Uh, this is for Professor Nottingham Martin. This is the fifth day of the 11th, 11th month of 2020. We're almost through. And I hereby reaffirm the Lawrence University Honor Code. So, stage one of this project is list map some of the spaces, places that you find within the novel. Uh, so, right off the bat, I think of the first space probably being the motel as a function of the, of the home. Um, this is where Mia's parents are. That's where the expectations of her as a contributor to the family, working behind the desk, uh, covering for her parents uh, while they take care of what needs um, to be done. Um, that's the motel, so that's um, space one. Space two I would put down as the school. So this is the other place where Mia's facing the greatest expectations from herself, uh, of herself, from those around her, uh, dealing with a lot of social pressure, and this expectation of her being a different person than I'd say she is at the motel, um, which honestly is quite natural for kids. They have their own cultures and subcultures, um, but also experiencing hostility and ostracization, um, on account of her being an immigrant and lower income, um, for instance, her clothing um, being well affordable, probably not uh, the nicest duds in the area. But you know, I grew up on Walmart t-shirts and they serve just fine. Kids outgrow shirts before, before they're out of fashion anyway, so. I personally support the utilitarian approach to um, kids and teenagers' clothing. <laughs> Anyhow, that's probably space number two. Now, third space, I think there, there are many of them, of course, um, as they're ever-evolving. Uh, but the English language, I think, for me, is a third space. Um, and I think it interesting uh, because this is the language of her adopted land and a language that she and her family are looked down upon for not having yet mastered. But Mia finds something in the English language that is her own, um, her ability to make it more malleable than others. Um, that it allows her creative abilities um, to flow so brilliantly and uh, to her eventual success. And, and this is really her own space. It's one that it's really encroached upon by both school and the motel as a function of her home and her parents. Um, because her parents, especially her mother, really don't want her to see as English as anything other 
than uh, a practical matter and that math is for her mom much more important to know and to hopefully love in her mom's thoughts than um, the English language and the pursuit of the English language in an academic sense. Um, so for Mia, this is hers and that stays consistent throughout the book, um, through the ups and downs of uh, what occurs to her. But I think another third space that takes uh, careful consideration is the motel's function as a safe house for the immigrants, uh, but also as a home for me and her family. Um, and this one, I think, is more fluid uh, than the English language for Mia, where because of the threat of Mr. Yao to the families living there and also the immigrant families who are living there without the knowledge or permission of Mr. Yao, um, There's this constant tension, um, and all the more so when Mr. Yao is around and the chance of discovery increases, um, where what is or was safe is no longer in that moment, but then when he leaves, it once again becomes far less dangerous and is sort of safe or the safest place um, for these families so that the motel can both be probably the first space and also a third space I think is pretty cool um, but anyway moving on I don't know Take a sip of tea here, peppermint, only the best. So, stage two. Drawing on some details from the Critical Frame articles and other materials, I analyze some aspect of how place, space, operate, or manifest in one of the novels we've read. So, I guess I didn't say this earlier, but I'm using front desk as um, my novel, for example's sake, and I want to tie Front Desk in with an article by uh, Mavis Reamer and Claire Bradford called Home, Homelessness, and Liminal Spaces, The Uses of Postcolonial Theory for Reading Children's Literatures. And with this piece, I'm going to read an excerpt here, and I want to dwell upon after the fact um, how that might tie into front desk. So Reamer and Bradford write, Home is an ambivalent idea that carries connotations of both safety and boredom, comfort and constriction. And later on, they discuss um, this settled power, um, this concept of home, and how it is a mobile subject at the center of much of children's literature. Um, 
but the trajectory of children's texts typically is to keep the home and the child's subject, both the subject inside the book and the subject outside the book. Not only has children's literature continued to issue the call to make it home to its readers, but often to do so in thematic and narrative terms. So talking about refusing homelessness now, I understand they're talking about home and homelessness in the abstract, but that in the case of me and her family, home, <laughs> home is rather subjective. They live and work for a man who provides them lodging, but it is not home. Um, and so the temporal nature of the motel itself, not only for me as family, but for the other immigrants, I think upends at least initially this concept of going towards a home in the end that Reamer and Bradford discuss. And um, so as far as liminal spaces, like I said before, how the motel can be both a primary space and also a liminal space. Uh, but definitely this relationship between me and her family's um, status of home and how it is tentative and how the tenterhooks uh, one is constantly upon them uh, because it is not assured. And I think this moves away from perhaps the stereotype of, oh, let's think like a Harry Potter where he's searching and searching and searching, but you know probably in the end he's going to find it. And I think for Mia and for the reader observing Mia, uh, that is not guaranteed Probably because there's a tease of there being a home. Like in a perfect scenario, the family being excellent employees, um, their home status would not be so difficult, but because of Mr. Yao's, well, to put it kindly, um, <laughs> excess interest in material gain, um, it can't be so for her family. And to zoom out, looking at the United States as a whole for their home, because they came as well-educated, uh, her family did, especially her parents, um, well-educated people who had to humble themselves uh, to a place that was not their norm, um, it was not their home or where they felt at home, but it was an off-putting and probably humiliating um, shift downward in both income and status. And so while this idea of home eventually coming around in the end with uh, the winning of a motel and whatnot, that the front of the book 
looks at the nuances of what a home can be and the threat of homelessness, I think is both uh, brilliant and much more accurate to the real world where both income, housing, anxiety are very real for low-income families. And uh, I think the author, um, Kelly Yang, did a phenomenal job with that. So now stage three, choose a particular object or small collection of objects that is connected to or signifies something about place in your chosen novel. Uh, please include some kind of visual of this object and because this is <laughs> spoken word, I will instead read from the text and uh, you, the listener, can visualize uh, what it is I'm talking about. And what I'd like to talk about is the front desk itself. I know, rather on the nose, given the title of the book, very original Luther. Yeah, I, I know. I strive to be as obvious as possible. So, talking about the desk. Our introduction to it was the family is just coming to the motel. It's their first time there and they step into the front door. Mr. Yao was waiting for us in the front office. He buzzed us in and lifted the divider so we could all get behind the front desk. The front desk was a long wooden desk that stretched almost the entire width of the room. Just behind the front office were the manager's quarters where Mr. Yao led us next. There's a living room with a bed in it. He pointed to the bed. You guys sleep there, he said to my parents, so you can hear the customers in the middle of the night. Customers come in the middle of the night, my dad asked. Mr. Yao nodded. Of course, it's a motel. But won't that wake them up, I asked. Mr. Yao rolled his eyes. That's the point, he said. Next, he led us over to the small bedroom. Um, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and joined my parents and Mr. Yao in the front office. Mr. Yao was explaining the buzzer. One wrong buzz and it's all over, he said. See that glass? He pointed at the thick glass enclosing the front office. That's bulletproof glass. You see a bad guy come up, you don't need to worry. They can't hurt you, but if you press this buzzer, he put his fingers on the buzzer just under the front desk and a loud buzz roared. That door right there gets unlocked, Mr. Yao said. And then what I asked him, then he's inside, Mr. Yao said. I looked around to see if there was any other magical buttons or bulletproof glass inside the office. There weren't. Asked Mr. Yao how we could tell if someone was a bad guy. Based on how they look, of course, he said, which made me wonder, because it's not like bad people walked around with a sticker on their head saying, I'm bad. The bottom line is, don't let any bad, let in any bad guys, Mr. Yao warned. His pupils expanded as he said the word bad. So, the front desk. Um, as far as third space in relation to the desk, uh, I, I'd like to focus on first uh, both the size of the desk, almost going across the entire room, and the exclusionary nature of it. With the bulletproof glass, the divider, and this button that allows or rejects people um, on rather subjective measures like who or who does not look like a bad guy. Um, and he is 
quite right in saying, well, not many people say that they're a bad guy out and out. But Mr. Yao makes it sound like there are only two spaces. There are those who are within and without. But of course, there's that space in between where you're passing between the two. And um, also the space of who and who is not a bad guy. And I think that's an amazing thing to make out of an inanimate object, that the desk itself has, has a character, it has a role, it has, it has a purpose here in the book that makes it almost sentient, but it is the input of the family behind the glass who, who must make the call. And they have the choice between yes and no. And so there is a third space, but there is also this choice ultimately between do I permit them in or not? And there can be no maybe to the pressing or not pressing of the button. And so in a book with so many third spaces, um, that Yang finds one moment where there can only be two. I think it's good writing. And so now you have a young girl behind the desk making that call and dealing with her own issues, her own assumptions about people, seeing racism in action and how the subjective assumptions about what a person will or won't do because of the color of their skin or where they come from or how well they speak the English language. To have that power in the hands of a child I think reveals Mia's development, her maturity, and maturing throughout the book. This has been a presentation of Luther Abel Podcasts. I'd like to thank all of our donors, such as the Volrath Company, Lawrence University's Luther Support Society, and the Blacksmith in on the Shore there in beautiful Door County. We appreciate your listening and hope you find nothing but the best in these words that I've spoken this evening. I thank you for your time and wish you all the very best.